Welcome to Process This, a podcast for the sterile processing community. The Healthcare Sterile Processing Association, HSPA, invites you to log on, listen and learn twice a month. Now it's time to process this with your host, clinical educator, John Wood. Welcome to the Process This Podcast. This is episode number 96. I hope you are doing well. Today on the show, we are talking to our very own Sue Klasik, one of your HSPA clinical educators. Now, if you have never had the pleasure of meeting Sue, she's awesome. She has been in this industry for a long time and has a wealth of knowledge. Well, today we're talking about Amy, the Association for the Advancement of Medical Instrumentation. So why are we talking about Amy? Well, if you've ever asked, why do you do certain things or where did you come up with that process? Well, if you're doing that process or activity correctly, then most likely that practice can be found in the Amy standards or one of the TIR technical information reports. And then believe it or not, there are some folks who have never even heard of Amy. They don't know about the standards or maybe they're just new to the industry. So Sue is here to help us out with some information about Amy. Like I said, Sue Klasik is one of your clinical educators at HSPA. She has been the HSPA representative to Amy since 1997. She serves as a voting member of some of the key committees and is co-chair of two of those. She has over 35 years experience managing sterile processing and has been a CRCST since 1980 and an instructor in the field since 1986. She holds a bachelor's degree in business administration. She is an international speaker talking on SP-related topics, a published author, and currently serves as your representative on the AORN Guidelines Advisory Board. Well, thank you, Sue, for joining me on the podcast today. What are the AMI standards and why are they so important for folks that work in sterile processing? Well, the AMI standards are the best practices that we use in healthcare facilities. And they are recognized as the foremost voluntary uh, setting organization that is accredited by ANSI. The standards are developed with users such as us because we work in sterile processing, manufacturers, and also with regulators. And why the standards are really so good is because not only are they developed with people who actually use the products every day, but we also use a lot of evidence-based information. There's a lot of research that we bring in that we use as we develop the standards. And it's really a, a good process because the collaboration between the users, the manufacturers, general interest, and also the regulators. It really pulls together the best practices. The users, of course, we talk about, you know, how the standards and TIRs work best in our facilities. And so that helps as we develop them to put them in a nice comprehensive document. Again, they are based on research and expert opinion. 
So there are a lot of documents out there that give advice on how to practice, and some are good and some honestly are not. Can you explain why Amy standards are a good source of information that sterile processing folks can rely on? Yes, the Amy standards, once again, they're developed with users, manufacturers, regulators, and general interest. They're also overseen by the Amy standards board. And as the standards are developed, they go up through the ANSI, the American National Standards Institute, for review and approval. So there are a lot of layers and a lot of people looking at the standards. And I really think it's important that we have regulators on the standards because for lack of a better term, they keep us all honest. They make sure that as a standard is developed, that it is within the instructions for use and within, you know, for FDA, for instance, they make sure that we are within their regulations. So we do not go outside of the regulations and that anything that is in the standard, you know, it, it's overseen by the Amy standards. And also, once again, the regulators to make sure that the um, standards say exactly what the best practice should be and that we don't go swerving off into a corner or that we don't put the standard too low. So you mentioned earlier, a TIR and a standard. So can you explain the differences between those two? A TIR is a technical information report and it's a review on technical um, issues relevant to a particular technology. For example, there's some new technologies coming out or that we're looking at, like ultraviolet lighting, UVs okay. used for disinfection. And so this, this TIR, you know, when a TIR comes out, it may include discussions on different sides of the issue, or it may be issued when a committee believes that the procedures for developing a standard would unduly delay this needed information. And TIR can serve as an interim statement by a committee working to develop standard. It may also provide additional guidance to an AMI or American National Standard or advice on how a standard might be implemented. For example, the water quality standard that was just recently released, there's going to be a new TIR on how to implement that. So that's an example of a TIR. Now that TIR is not going to go through the ANSI process, but a TIR, since it's informational, will be able to get it out to the user community a whole lot quicker than we would a standard. There's some other new uh, TIRs that we're looking at. So we have the TIR for the water quality. There's also a new TIR that has been approved for use on processing tattoo equipment. And yet in the other one, as I said earlier, on UV, ultraviolet lights used for disinfection, there's some new information on that. And so Amy is putting together committees, once again, consisting of users and also some of the manufacturers. Regulators also will be invited to join these committees. And so together we'll, we'll develop a new TIR. There are some instances where TIRs have been converted into standards. Most recently, our water quality standard, it, it was TIR 34 and now it is ST 108. It does happen that 
TIRs do go into standards. Another one that that happened with is high level disinfection and chemical sterilants. That used to be a TIR and many years ago it was converted to a standard. So again, typically this, the TIR just provides information on a subject, whereas a standard provides actual guidance on how to perform in our world, um, how to perform processes in sterile processing. Can you walk us through the process of how a standard is actually created? Yes, first there is a new uh, new work proposal and oftentimes once again, it starts from a TIR. So with a new work proposal, any individual or organization having an interest will make the proposal and it has to be within the standards programmed approved scopes. It's also recommended whenever the proposal is submitted it's recommended that the first draft of the proposed document should accompany the proposal. It doesn't have to occur that way, but it does help the proposal move along. Uh, the Amy staff reviews the work proposal, make sure that it's complete and clear, and to ensure that the work is not already in Amy's uh, program or that of other standards organizations. It's then evaluated the proposal is sent out to the uh, appropriate parties within AMI where appropriate input may be sought from outside stakeholders with regard to the need and feasibility of the proposed work, as well as to determine if AMI is the appropriate organization to develop the work. It then goes to the standards board and they need to consider the need for the new work and the priority of the work for AMI, the feasibility of completing the work. And once again, whether the work is within Amy's scope and whether Amy has sufficient resources, including stakeholder participation and current consensus body workload to undertake the new work. In addition, the standards board will consider whether a more appropriate technical organization should undertake the work. So, and then after they approve this, they will need at least two thirds of those members participating in the meeting they need to support the proposal. The proposal then goes to the committee and typically the committee will break up into task forces to address certain issues. For instance, there may be a task force on attire, another one on the environment, and then another one on the procedures. And then they pull all of this together. And then from that, they start developing the standard. Standard is then in draft form. The draft form then goes out to the committee members and then we start working off the draft form. Uh, once it goes to the committee, the committee will review it and then they'll start commenting on it. And then they'll submit their comments as to the committee. And then when we meet, we go over every single uh, comment and the committee decides, you know, do we accept it? Do we modify it? And then another draft is formed <laughs> and we go through that process again. Yeah, it sounds like a, a very involved and in-depth process just to get it created. Yeah, and you know, we just did, we're going through this now with the TIR on external transport. And we've gone through numerous committee drafts and we're hoping soon to have our first, you know, committee draft for vote. We're hoping it will be very, very soon. So we could get that out to the users. ST79, the Steam Sterilization and Sterility Assurance Standard, is one of the most popular standards in sterile processing. And 
in case folks don't know, Sue Klasik is the co-chair of that working group. So she does a lot with that standard. Can you talk about the process the standard goes through when it gets updated? Because it also takes a very, it's a very lengthy <laughs> process, right? And people want to know, you know, why does it take several years for that document to, to get updated? So what happens, the current version will go to all of the committee members. And as you know, it's a very, very long document. And so all the committee members will review the document and they will then make comments on the document. And it would not be a surprise to get like two or 3,000 comments. I know at HSPA, for instance, when members contact the office and they have a question or a comment or a suggestion about, you know, a, the standard, I keep a log of that. So when the document is opened, I'm going to review my log and take the comments and suggestions and then make a comment into ST79 for the committee. Now, when we make a comment, what we'll do is, you know, we'll say this part of the document we disagree with for whatever reason. And then we have to also put in how it should be resolved, how we want to resolve that. When the committee meets, everybody will have read the entire ST79. So then when we meet, they will also have gotten through all the comments. And so they'll be prepared when we come to the meeting to discuss all of the comments. Now, some comments might just be editorial and the co-chairs have the option to accept those. And an editorial may be something as, a, as easy as a typo or a plural instead of a singular. It may be that simple. And so it's just accepted and we move on because there's quite a few comments. Also, there's a lot of research that has gone on. For instance, in SD79, I am sure when we open the document, we're gonna talk about blood splatter. Recently, there was that great study done by Corey and it talks about blood splatter. So I'm sure when we talk about the environment and PPE, that will be included. And in the um, bibliography, we will probably, I'm sure somebody will cite that and that will end up in the bibliography. In the back of all the standards, there's usually, especially ST79, there is a very, very long bibliography talking about, you know, where the references came from and all of the research. I think it's also important to note that everybody on the committee is a volunteer. Yes. And, and, and meaning they have other jobs and they have, you know, full-time jobs and full-time careers. And so all this is done, you know, in conjunction with that. And I know that, you know, Sue, for one, you do a lot of work, not only in your regular job, but also on this committee. And so um, I think that just plays another part. And, you know, everybody's working very diligently to, you know, make comments, revolve comments, and move documents along. So, yeah, that's a really good point. And I can tell you, being on the committee for well over 25 years, the members of the committee are very passionate. Majority of them are very passionate about best practices and wanting to do things right. Because at the very end of all this, there's a patient who counts on us doing our job properly each and every time that we are following best practices. And we're making sure that the instruments before they go over to prep and package, that they're thoroughly cleaned, that there's no debris left in them, and that we inspect them and make sure that 
the instruments are safe and clean for patients before they go on to sterilization. And so we're all passionate about that because we all have loved ones and we want we all want our loved ones to have the best of care. So when folks read the AMI standards, there are a few key words that are really important when interpreting the document. And you really have to know, you know, what those words mean. And some of the examples are like the shalls and the shoulds and the mays. Can you explain these key terms, meaning how are they referenced in the document and how should we use them? Yes, there are terms that Amy uses that mean specific, that have specific meanings. For instance, the term must means that it is regulated by the government. There is no way around it. For instance, the government says, according to um, OSHA, that we must wear PPE when we're working in the decontam room. It doesn't matter if there's just one little item and we know there's no blood on it. No, according to OSHA, it is a must. You, we must wear PPE when we're in the decontam room. Now the term shall, that signifies that a requirement is to be strictly adhered to. So that would mean when you're working in the sterile processing area, we shall don proper attire. Should indicates that a certain possibility or course of action is preferred, but not necessarily required. Or in the negative form, a certain possibility or course of action should be avoided, but is prohibited. The term may describes a course of action that is permissible within the limits of the recommended practice. And lastly, you may see the term can, and that is used as a statement of possibilities or capabilities. And typically you would find these terms at the very beginning of your standard and TIR. They are addressed in there. So in case you forget, they are they are included in your standards. Yeah, and I think it's just important to know these terms because when you start looking at something, I, I hear a lot of, well, Amy says I have to do this or I have to do that. And, you know, in some cases it's not a have to. It's, it's you know, you, you should do this because this is uh, more of a best practice. Or if there's an alternative, you can do this if, if that fits better for your facility. So it's not always a, I have to do everything that's in here. It's Amy is looking at best practices. It's, it's telling you things that are regulatory, telling you recommendations from Amy, and then also things that you should look at and practice. So thank you for explaining that. So there are a few different groups that represent Amy at the meetings. And you mentioned some of those like the government, uh, the FDA, there's users, there's industry, again, there's government. Can you explain these different groups and who they represent? So yeah, there are different groups. Um, there are users, industry, and government, and I'm proud to say that we are users. We use the products. We use the sterilization packaging. We use the sterilizers. Uh, we use the instrumentation, the quality assurance indicators, so we're classified as users. And so to the table, we bring actual experience and really good expert opinion on how these products are actually used in facilities. And sometimes the industry people don't quite know that we're, what we're doing. Now, industry would be the manufacturers. These are the sterilizer manufacturers, the instrument manufacturers that actually make the product. So here's a good example of um, the industry not knowing what users do. 
as we're developing this new TIR on external transport, us users, we're meeting with some instrument manufacturers, industry. And so we were talking about transporting our items between facilities, both before use and after use. Well, interestingly, the some of these manufacturers had no idea that we were doing that. And they said, so because you're sending these items between facilities and they're probably not packaged appropriately to prevent a shake and vibration, that may be why we're seeing more repair. So they just, so once again, we have industry and users. We weren't quite talking to each other, but through this TIR, we are. And this new TIR on external transport as users and manufacturers, we're going to have some suggestions in there on how to prevent some shake and vibration damage to our equipment. Now, regulators, the government, they're also involved in these standards and the TIRs. And, and once again, they pretty much keep us honest. They keep us within the lines of the federal government, like what we can and cannot do, what can and cannot be said. Hey, let's pause our conversation for just a second. Are you looking to get a CE for this episode? Well, you are in the right place. To receive the CE for this episode, simply click on the link in the episode notes, log on to the MyHSPA website, and make sure you are using the code TIR34. The code to get your CE is TIR34. Now, let's get back to our conversation. So if one of our listeners was interested in joining Amy, being on one of these committees, how would they do that? And I think more importantly, what are the expectations of folks that are joining on these committees or participating in the committees? Because it's not just a, a show up, like there's actual work involved. So what do those expectations look like? So first off, to join Amy, uh, you could go to, to amy.org, A-A-M-I.org. And on the top of the um, website, there is a membership tab. And if you click through that, you can see how to join it. To join it, you need to prove that you're a user working in a healthcare facility. And the expectations, John, um, first off, let me say, if you're coming to a meeting for the very, very first time, the advice that was given to me, I will give to you. The first time, just come as an observer. As we're going, you'll, you'll see them as the meeting progresses, we're going through a lot of comments and sometimes new members tend to say, you know, tend to talk about a comment that may have been resolved two or three times already. And so the first time, once again, just come and observe, see what's going on. Um, just to get the really, really good, it's really great experience. And then the expectation is also to start, you know, reviewing the documents and making comments. Oftentimes there are task groups assigned and that's a great way to, to really get involved with the standards and also to start to meet other members. I really feel that the in-person attendance at the Amy meetings is the best because you can network with people. Not always possible. The second best alternative is actually to just dial into the meetings and come in virtually, but at least you're there and you can hear the conversation as it's going on and you can hear the debate about each comment. And 
the, the debate about the comments is really informative because you see two or three sides of an argument for for every comment and then how it gets placed into the standard. So I would, um, summing it up, I would say, you know, come to the meetings, read the documents, make your comments, get involved on the task teams. And as you're there, the longer you're there, after a while, you know, being a member of the committee and being on different task forces, we try to develop the members of Amy to, you know, go into the co-chair position. So maybe you're on a task force, a couple task forces. The next step would be to be the lead on that task force. So really, uh, that's a great question, John. And, you know, I encourage, you know, those of us involved in sterile processing to come and get involved on the Amy committees. It's very, very um, informative and the networking is amazing. And I've met some really great friends at Amy. So I recommend coming to the meeting if you can, if not come in virtually, but always be prepared. Great. Well, thank you, Sue. Thanks for sharing the information on the show with us. And, and above all, thanks for your dedication to Amy and the users, us in the industry and your service on not only as the co-chair on you know, working group 40, which is ST79, but all of the other uh, committees that you serve on. So thanks again, Sue. Oh, thanks. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Well, folks, that music means only one thing. And I'm sorry to say that we are out of time for today. Thank you so much, Sue, for sharing with us today. So if you would like more information on Amy, if you have questions or just want to find out some more information about it, you can always contact HSPA on the myhspa.org website or go to the amyaami.org website and we would be happy to help you. HSPA episode number 96 is now in the books. We are done for today. Thanks for sticking around with us. Just so you know, each of these episodes are on demand. So when you're ready for us, we're going to be there for you. As always, stay classy and we'll see you next time.